Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to, Ephi, uh, to Hebrews, rather, Hebrews chapter 11, and uh, we'll read at verse 23, but we're focusing in verses 24 to 26. Hebrews 11, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. Father, will you please, who by the Spirit first inspired these words and spoke them, speak to us through them directly by the Holy Spirit, working within our minds to illumine us, cleansing the thoughts of our hearts so we might receive these words as the very words of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now you can see from this short reading that we've had this morning that the faith of Moses or the story of Moses' faith begins before he's born. In fact, the way in which it's structured and, and the author is very careful in the way that he very economically uses language here, the, the words by faith Moses, we would assume would immediately introduce us to something that Moses did that demonstrates his faith. Where in fact, the words by faith Moses in verse 23, introduces to something that happened prior to and then at the time of his birth and for the first months after his birth. By faith, Moses, when he was born, and then it's talking about his parents. He was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful. In other words, here are two ordinary people, Amram and Jochebed, his mother and father, ordinary people who exercised faith by building an ark after three months, building an ark and placing the child in the ark and committing his, this little baby to the river of death where all the boys of, of the Hebrews were being killed by Pharaoh. The writer to the Hebrews is very carefully crafting his words to point out the link between these covenant parents and these, this covenant child in order to teach us that before we have anything to say about Moses and his faith in action, we must think about the faith of his parents. To, Mo, to both Moses and to his parents, Amram and Jochebed, this faith was the gift of God. Faith is always the gift of God. It's not of self created, self-generated thing. It is always the gift of God. And if you are a believing couple this morning, or you are one believer in a couple where the other isn't, or you're a single parent, a be believing parent or guardian of a child, will you remember, will you remember this covenantal link between your faith and the faith of your children? Now Moses, Moses lived for 120 years. For 40 years, he was a prince in the royal court of Egypt. We're told very little about what happened 
during that period. Then for 40 years, he was a shepherd out in the mountains. There he met his wife and his in-laws. But apart from that, he was a very very happy period, those 40 years uh, spent with his wife out there. 40 years, carefree, hassle-free, developing his family, growing his family, and looking after the sheep. Those sheep were the best congregation that Moses ever had. And then at the age of 80, at the age of 80, he became the pastor to two million Hebrews. And that was the end of his comfortable lifestyle, as it often is, uh, because that was by no means an easy time, as you can see if you read the story in Numbers and and, uh, the rest of Exodus and Numbers and so on, that that was not an easy period. But I want to come to this text this morning, and I want you to notice something about the flow of this text. It describes uh, how how Moses' faith worked out in action. And in the text, we're given a description of the result of his faith first, and then the process by which he came to that result. Let Let me put it in other words. Let me do the text from its chronological, in its chronological sense. It begins at the end, considering the reproach of Christ greater. That's, that's where it all began, considering, thinking through, counting something up, dwelling on something, meditating on it, coming to a conclusion about it. He considered the cause of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt. With that in mind, he chose to be mistreated with the people of God. And in choosing to be mistreated with the people of God, he was demonstrating his refusal, his refusal to be called the son of Abram's daughter. So in a sense, what the author is doing is beginning at the end and then working its way, his way back to the beginning. And I want us to to kind of grasp how the flow of this passage goes by picking up words from the beginning, the middle, and the end. By faith, Moses chose Christ. By faith, Moses chose Christ. And he chose Christ over the honors and the pleasures and the treasures of Egypt. Let's walk through those together. Moses, by faith, Moses chose Christ over the honors of Egypt. See how it's put there. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, you know the history. We did a bit of it last time, but if you weren't here, let me just remind you that this boy is born under a sentence of death. All the little boys born into Hebrew families were under the sentence of death. But this boy's parents sensed something. Whether they had a revelation or a nudging of the Holy Spirit, probably to some degree that was true, but there was something extraordinary they saw in the beauty of this baby. Uh, we all think our babies are beautiful, uh, and, and I need to say at this point, since they're watching, that, of course, ours were all outstanding, 
But these parents, these parents, and there's the badge, the, these parents <laughs> knew there was a sense of the Holy Spirit prompting them to recognize that in the extraordinary beauty of this baby, there was an indication, there was a sign from God that this was to be the significant deliverer of the people of Israel. And it was that that prompted them then, not to be afraid of the edict of the king, but to risk all in protecting and preserving the life of this child. And even in their action of building a little ark for him and making it watertight and placing him on the very river of death where all the other little boys were being drowned, there was an act of faith there. There was an act of, of radical resistance, if you will, to the regime of that period. Imagine putting the baby on the very river of death. And there on the very river of death, God providing a place for him to grow up. They'd already had this little baby circumcised. They believed the promise of God. There was something in their knowledge of the promise of God to Abraham that through his seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. If Pharaoh had his way, he would snuff out the chosen seed. And these parents grasped the promise. They had their child circumcised, as we have our children baptized, as a sign and seal of God's promise to preserve His people in the world. And we know that happened, not because we're told that it happened, but because from the time of Abraham and onwards, God's people circumcised the, male, the males in their household. Every baby was circumcised. We also know it because when the Egyptian princess found the little baby Jesus, the baby Moses, uh, in, in the ark, uh, it's kind of default setting really, anyway, uh, when they found the baby Moses in the ark, she immediately knew this is one of the Hebrew children. How did she know? Because the baby had been circumcised. And that's what prompts Miriam to come out of the bushes and say, you'll need a, a Hebrew woman to, to be able to nurse him, and I know exactly the woman to help. And off she went and brings his natural mother to nurse him and to bring him up. And though it was the Egyptian princess who called him Moses, during the first 12 years or so of his life, he was under the almost exclusive influence of his mother. Though he lived in the royal palace, his mother would be there every day to care for him and perhaps staying in the, early, in the early years to ensure that he was well and good. And there came a time when his natural parents had to stand back and to watch him grow up in the royal palace of Egypt as a prince of Egypt. We, Stephen in Acts 7 tells us, Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in word and deed. He learned all the stuff you learned as a prince in the very exclusive world of the royal palace. He would have learned the astrology, the science, the religion, the art, the philosophy, the history, the language, the architecture, the technology of Egypt. In every respect that you could possibly imagine, the way he talked, in the way he looked, in the way he walked, he walked like an Egyptian. He, he did all of these things. 
He did all of these things. And you would never have noticed for one moment that he was anything other than an Egyptian. And his parents would have watched and wondered, wouldn't they? As, as they saw this, they would have wondered, what is he learning? What are they putting into his heart and into his mind? Christian parents, when your children are let loose in the world, have the same faith with which you brought them for their baptism, to trust God with their lives. Trust God with their lives. How unsearchable are God's judgments and His ways past finding out. Don't think that when they're outside of your influence that they're outside of God's influence. And these parents are to watch for 40 years, 40 years before Moses came out as a decided believer. Forty years, we know this, because it says in our text that there came a time when he was grown up. He was grown up. Megos genomenos in the Greek. Same words that are used in the Greek translation of Exodus 2, and it came to pass in those days after Moses was grown up that he went out to his brethren. And Stephen in Acts 7 tells us what age it was that Moses was grown up. You're waiting for this. He was full 40 years old. So by the time you're 40 years old, you're meant to be grown up, apparently, in Bible, in Bible terms. But that's the way the expression is used. Uh, let me just reassure you that 60 is the new 40. So you're, you're okay if you haven't gotten there yet. And in some fact, some have gone beyond 60 and aren't fully grown up, but that's another matter. But you can imagine what the parents are thinking in all of this time. Is he ever going to see it? Is he ever going to come out as a, as a believer? They were waiting patiently. That's what, that's what parents have to do. When we send our children out into the world, we have to wait patiently. And uh, the text assures us that they were waiting patiently, perhaps sometimes impatiently, because we are parents after all. But it was by faith, and it's by faith Christian parents bring their covenant children to God in baptism, believing the promises of God, and it's by faith we let them go out into the world, waiting till, to receive them back in God's time. And in Moses' case, he was 40 years old before he identified himself with the people of God. Now, he grew up then in the royal family. He grew up being lauded and honored as the son of the princess. The whole world was his oyster. It was waiting for him, beckoning him. And yet, he chose to ignore that he belonged in the palace. He could not ignore that he belonged to the Hebrews. He carried with him the covenant sign. Just as everyone who has been baptized carries throughout their life the covenant sign of baptism. Martin Luther says, whenever you're under pressure, wherever you're being, whenever you're being assaulted, remember your baptism. Remember that you were given back to God by your parents. Remember the promises of God that are loaded into that baptism of yours. And Moses was reminded every day of that covenant sign of God, that promise of God 
in which his parents had protected him and to which his parents had dedicated him early on in his life. And one day, one day, when he was 40, he went out to look after the interests of his people. And he found an Egyptian taskmaster was beating the life out of one of the Israelite slaves. And looking this way and that, Moses struck out and killed that Egyptian. He knew immediately that it was wrong. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was over-eager for the people of God, and he put off any usefulness that he would have had to the church of God for 40 years. The next day, he found two Hebrews fighting one another. He went to intervene. It was the first church fight that Moses tried to resolve and intervene on. And they reacted against him. Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Are you going to do to us what you did to the Egyptian? In other words, the story was out. It was common knowledge. And Moses had to flee for his life. That's the background to the passage that we're reading today. There was an impulsive action. It's not mentioned here in the text. But what is mentioned in the text is the faith that had already been at work in him that led him to deliberately going out to visit his people. You read about it in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. He went out to his people and looked on their burdens. He went out because he'd already been cut off in his heart. He'd already determined not to live like an Egyptian. He'd already decided not to accept the honors of being the son of the Egyptian princess. He decided that rather he would seek the favor of the eternal invisible God by identifying himself with God's people. He could see beyond the weaknesses, their weaknesses. He could see beyond their marginalization of him and their rejection of him and the persecution and hardship that they were enduring. He could see beyond those things to the glory and the happiness and the perfection of their eternal destiny, and he identified with them. Now, it isn't, it isn't wrong to have earthly honors, and it's not for everyone to abandon earthly honors for Jesus' sake. Obadiah lived in Ahab's court. Joseph had served in Pharaoh's court. Daniel served in the court of the Babylonians and later the Persians. In the New Testament, there are some saints that Paul refers to who had grown up as part of Nero's household. But there are times, moments, in the lives of God's people where they're faced with a decision, will they continue to accept the honors of the world, where the honors of the world compromise their ability to identify with God's people, where the honors of the world are the honors of a world that is in fact determined that it will obliterate God's people, where the honors of the world are the honors of those whose desire it is to crush and destroy the people of God. By faith, Moses chose Christ above the honors of Egypt. 
Secondly, by faith, Moses chose Christ over the pleasures of Egypt. Notice that. He chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Now, I don't have too many bees in my bonnet. You know that expression in America, bees in your bonnet? No? Okay. I, I don't have any hang-ups in life. And if I do, you know most of them, so I'm, you might as well know this one. Uh, but one of my hang-ups is when people butcher other people's hymns. When people feel free to change the words of hymns. Now, we sing I know most of the hymns we sing here, but sometimes you'll notice I sing different words from you because I'm singing the right words. <laughs> we, we sing a hymn here. Let me, let me tell, tell you this. Dr. Gordon of Boston in the 19th century, one of the most famous preachers in America, wrote a hymn, My Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine, for thee all. Now we sing wrongly, all the follies of sin I resign. It's wrong on several counts. One, it is very bad poetry. does not capture the flow of the original. Number two, even people who love sin would avoid the follies of sin. You know what I mean? I mean, even people who love sin know that some sins lead to really bad results. So, that's one of the follies of sin. It's not hard to resign the follies of sin. Number three, it is not what the author said, which I think clinches the deal, don't you think? I mean, Dr. Gordon is in heaven. You're going to meet him one day. When you sing his song, sing it with your minister. Instead, for thee all the pleasures of sin I resign. That's what he said in the hymn. The pleasures of sin. Now, I discovered this week that I have an ally in my, in my case. The ally is G. Campbell Morgan, an early 20th century preacher, and he goes after the same thing. I found it this week. I was so pleased to find that somebody else felt the same thing. And here's what he thinks. Campbell Morgan thinks that it was some spiritual person somewhere who thought, we don't want the word pleasures, our children singing pleasures of sin. We don't want them thinking there's any pleasures in sin, so let's change it so that they, we kind of, we ward them off those things. Well, brothers and sisters, there are pleasures in sin. That's why people sin. There are pleasures in sin. Of course, there are pleasures that we have in life that God has given to us that we can enjoy because no sin is hatched. But there are other pleasures that lead to sin. And when we say, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine, for thee all the pleasures of sin I resign, we're saying we're making a choice to stand with Moses. We're making a choice to stand with Moses and all of God's people who are prepared to say in their lives, I am not going to have anything to do with the pleasures of sin. But you notice the reason why. Here's the reason why, and we need to have this in our minds as much as anything else, because we enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, for a moment, for a little while. The pleasures of sin are real. The pleasures of sin are mm, pleasurable. 
but they are unstable. They are unstable. They offer only temporary enjoyment. In fact, very often they're interrupted in this life, and they end finally at death. The pleasures of sin. Now, we don't know the details. We don't know what it was. Life was perhaps becoming more complex in the royal family. Perhaps the pleasures of Egypt were becoming all the more invasive into his life, becoming costly, costing him small, perhaps small inconveniences. Now they're beginning to cost him some small, small annoyances, and then increasingly ways in which he has to he has to surrender some of his values or whatever it may be, but he was recognizing the pleasures of Egypt were seeping into his spiritual life. And what we are told is his resolve. He would resolve to choose the greatest affliction over the greatest pleasure. He weighed them in a scale, as it were. He thought to himself, these pleasures lead to a small sin. What, what, is, what is the nature of the very smallest sin you can imagine? It is transgressing the law of God. It is transgressing the law of God. doesn't matter how small it is. What is the greatest affliction? The greatest affliction in a person's life only diminishes your happiness or your comfort for a season. And it ends when life ends. The discomfort ends when life ends. And he weighed these two things up, and he resolved that he would choose affliction with the people of God. You see, in suffering, the offense is done to us. In sin, the offense is done to God. Suffering wearies us. Sin wearies God. So Moses reasoned that temporary suffering with an external reward was infinitely to be preferred over temporary pleasure and an eternal judgment. And so he chose to identify with the people of God. And what was he doing when he identified with the people of God? Well, he, he was identifying with the God of Israel, first of all. He was choosing God to be God. That's where it all begins. That's the first article in the covenant. You shall love the Lord, have no other gods but me. God demands the foremost place the highest honor in your mind and in your affections. The choice in Moses' case was an outward visible evidence of the inworking of God's grace in his life by which his affections and his mind and his imagination were being more and more cleansed and purified by the Holy Spirit so that there are more and more disconnected from things around them and more connected with eternal and spiritual realities. Moses chose God to be God. Therefore, he chose God's people to be his people. And in choosing God's people 
to be his people. What was he choosing? He was choosing the affliction that they were suffering. But that's not all he was choosing. He was choosing the affliction that they would bring to him. Moses didn't realize that. In fact, we're told in the text in Exodus, for he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand should deliver them, but they did not understand. Here was Moses coming to rescue the church. And they're suspicious of him from the very start. They think of him as a foreigner. I mean, he looks and dresses like an Egyptian. They don't want this Egyptian-looking person with an Egyptian accent saving the church. And everything that he did seemed to cause them more, more harm. It made matters worse for them. That was the calling that Moses had. In fact, if you look over the story of Moses, you'll find that he discovered in the, in the church that was Israel, the backstabbing, the backbiting, the politicking that every minister finds whenever he goes to a church. That's why Moses is a great model for ministers. If you have to choose, choose the sheep rather than the congregation. No, that's not the lesson at all. But be ready. Be, re be ready that comes for the affliction that comes with the people of God. Moses, by faith, Moses chose Christ over the pleasures of Egypt. And by faith, Moses chose Christ over the treasures of Egypt. He considered, he considered, he counted the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Because he had respect to the recompense of the reward. I don't need to describe the treasures of Egypt. It was the great power of its time. We've discovered in the tombs of the Egyptian pharaohs something of the opulence, the wealth, which was mind-boggling, abundance that they enjoyed. But here we're being told what the rationale was behind that ultimate choice of Moses. His radical act of forsaking Egypt, of identifying with Israel, was based on his firm conviction that there was greater wealth elsewhere, that is, in Christ. Greater wealth elsewhere, that is, in Christ. Now, does he really mean that he chose Christ? Well, yes, of course he chose Christ. That's hinted to by the last phrase, he was looking forward. This was what he was looking for. He was looking forward to something. Remember what Moses knew. He knew what God had promised Eve, that by a singular offspring of hers, Satan would be destroyed. He knew what God had promised Abraham, that through giving him the land of Canaan, they'd go to the land of Canaan, and in the land of Canaan, one of his offspring would be the means of blessing all the families of the world. He knew, Abraham knew, that when, I, when Isaac was blessing Israel, when, when Jacob was blessing Israel, he identified the house of Judah 
And he said it would be from the house of Judah that the Messiah would come, that he would have the authority, and to him all the gathering of the nations would be. Moses knew that. Moses was brought up in a society he knew, he learned from his mother from the earliest days, from the families of those who were related to him, that they were all looking forward to this one who was to come, who was to be the great redeemer of his people. And not only that, we need to remember that Christ was present at Moses' time. Christ was present at creation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And there was not one moment of history between then and Bethlehem where Jesus, if not known by name, was present as the eternal Son of God, present with His people. He was present because He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, as, Joseph, as Moses looked at these enslaved people, these people who had a hope of the Messiah, a hope that was placed in their corporate heart from the very beginning, from the gates of Eden, nurtured over those long years in Egypt, blessed particularly to his own parents, Joseph embraced Christ by faith, you know, one of the things about our, the patriarchs before Moses' time was this. They had a very heightened view of the eternal reward that was coming. They, they looked for a city that had foundations whose builder and maker was God. They were, looking for, they were looking for glory. They were looking for the new heavens and the new earth. They were looking for the eternal city. Moses embraced that faith, and he reckoned. He chose, he acted because he believed in Christ. And we today need to learn to choose Christ by faith. That Christ's communion with his people did not start at Bethlehem and didn't end with Bethlehem. That Christ is present with his people right now, just as Christ was present with Moses and Abraham and, and uh, those that went before, so he is present with us now by the Spirit. And right now, we have to choose Christ, whatever it means, whatever it costs. And he learned that there was a real communion be between Christ and his people. It was the affliction of Christ reproach of Christ that they were enduring. All of what was happening to the people of God was happening to the people of God because of their intimate relationship with Christ. In fact, Isaiah tells us this in Isaiah 63, in all their affliction, He was afflicted, and the angel of His presence saved them. And in Christ, my dear beloved friends, in Christ there are treasures there are pleasures, there are honors that go beyond anything that is available from the world today. To be the child of God, to be known as the child of God, to enjoy pleasures forevermore at the Father's right hand, to gain 
the infinite wealth that is coming to the child of God by the inheritance of the saints is beyond computation in human terms. We look not at things that are seen, but at things that are unseen. Paul could say, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but refuse in order that I might gain Christ. It is good for us to draw near to God. So I want to ask you, do you consider God to be your highest honor, your greatest pleasure, and your manifest treasure? Do you? As Moses did. Do you consider the direction of your life a direction that is moving towards that eternity that God has prepared for those who love Him? Do you see the direction of your life going that way? You say this is only for old people to talk about the direction of your life going towards eternity. Let me tell you this. I was more aware of eternity as a boy than I am as a man. As time has passed, there's more to tie me here. But as a boy, I think I saw more clearly the glories of eternity and need to be constantly brought back to being reminded, as these Scriptures are reminding me, of those glories, those honors, those treasures, those pleasures that are reserved in heaven for us who believe. I want to ask you, are you living your life by faith in Christ? Will you choose Christ today? Maybe you're not a Christian. Will you choose Christ today? Maybe you've been a Christian for a long time, but you've been choosing other things. Will you choose Christ? Maybe you've been diverted. Maybe you've been upset by the church. Maybe other believers have been a bit like the, the people that Moses encountered there when he thought he was helping them and they turned on him. Or they moaned and murmured for 40 years in the desert. Maybe you found the church to be like that. I ask you, not do you like them, but do you identify with His people because they belong to Christ? That's why we love the church. We love the church because Christ loved the church. And because Christ loved the church, these people are our people. And their God is our God. Will you join us? Will you join us as we march forward to that reward, that city of God? Will you join us today in the journey towards Canaan, towards the city of God, towards Emmanuel's land? Will you choose Christ? Let's pray. Father, we pray that by Your Holy Spirit we might today, in being confronted with this great, the most significant choice that we will make in all of our lives, a choice that determines not only the outcome for our life here, but for the outcome of our life 10 billion years from this moment. Will You 
Enable us by the Holy Spirit to choose Christ. We pray in his strong name. Amen.